If you grew up in Minnesota, you probably studied Minnesota state history. I grew up in Oregon, so I didn't study Minnesota state history. So I was intrigued when uh, we lived here to find out that uh, when you drive through St. Paul, now there's a freeway, but there didn't used to be, that the basilica was being built before the state capitol was being built. And then the Catholics found out that the state capitol was going to be higher than the top of the basilica. So the Catholics stopped the building project, redesigned the project so when they were both done, the basilica would be higher than the top of the state capitol, the dome of the state capitol. And the symbolism of it, and I don't care what you think of the Catholic Church, I love the symbolism of that act. The symbolism is that they were saying that God's wisdom has to be higher than man's wisdom. God's wisdom is more important than man's wisdom. So regardless of what you think of the Catholic Church, you have to like that symbolic statement that God's wisdom is always higher than our wisdom. And one of the interesting things about having a new pastor in one's church is that a new pastor always comes with new ideas and new visions. And then the church has to think through how do we assimilate all of these new ideas and these new visions that are being presented to us. And unfortunately, sometimes or oftentimes, but sometimes we look at those new ideas or those new visions and we look at them through our eyes and our wisdom instead of saying, what is God's wisdom here? So what I'd like to present to you this morning is how do we know that something is God's wisdom? How do we achieve God's wisdom and how do we express God's wisdom? And James discusses this very clearly and very, very thoroughly in James chapter three, verses 13 through 18. And I'd like to have you follow along as I read this. The first question in this in this this section of verses is very penetrating and very sobering. Who is wise and understanding among you? Now, probably some of us here this morning think that we're wise and we probably think we have understanding, but we wouldn't be bold enough to stand up and proclaim that we are wise and have understanding. But he answers the question for us. Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. Isn't it interesting? He doesn't say anything about words. He talks about our lives, deeds done in humility. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, quote unquote, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual. It's of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes first from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Now, the big question is this, James says, who is wise and understanding among you? Interestingly, the word wise means to know how to apply God's knowledge to life, to know how to apply God's answers to life situations. And it doesn't make any difference whether the situation is a personal situation with which we're dealing or if it's a corporate decision with which an entire church would deal. We also need to remember that, 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 the, that when Paul lists the spiritual gifts, he lists, he lists wisdom as one of the spiritual gifts. And that's exactly the word that James uses here. 
So that doesn't mean that we all have the spiritual gift of wisdom. But when we're trying to discern God's will, it would certainly be important for us, it seems to me, that we would say we need to listen to the person with the spiritual gift of wisdom. But unfortunately, what happens far too often in the church is that some of us think we're wise and think we have understanding and we speak way beyond the issue uh, which is being addressed. And that reminds us, does it not, of Abraham Lincoln's words when he said, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open our mouths and remove all doubts. And yet that's sometimes what happens, that we get involved in a discussion in the church, we're trying to ascertain God's will, and yet by the way we conduct ourselves, it's obvious that we're not achieving God's will. And then James goes on to say, as I made comment as we were reading, the wisdom is proven not just by our words, but it's proven by our life. And he says this, that this is proven, let him show it by his good life. In other words, The proof of wisdom is not just what we say or it's not how we would answer a particular situation, but it's also proven by by how we live our lives. And he goes on to say, by our deeds done in humility. Interestingly enough, the word humility is also translated gentleness. It's exactly the same word that Paul uses in Galatians chapter five, verses 22 and 23, when he's elaborating for us the fruit of the spirit. And the word gentleness there, or the word meekness, if you still use the old King James Bible, that word means to be willing to bend my knee to the Spirit of God. It was used three different ways in in the Apostle Paul's day. One of the ways was to describe a well-trained show horse in a a circus. We've all been to the circus as kids, and we know when the master says a command, the horse does whatever he has been trained to do. And what the Bible is trying to help us understand When we are people of gentleness or people of meekness, we are people who know how to respond to the Spirit of God and we respond to the Spirit of God when he speaks to us. So James is trying to help us understand that we do need wise people in our lives and we do need the wisdom of God in our lives. After all, that's why he gave us the the gave people the gift of the, the spiritual gift of wisdom. But we have to understand that wisdom is more than just what we say. It's how we live our lives. And sometimes, sadly, there are people in church who often speak in business meetings, but they don't understand that we don't hear them because we observe how they live their lives the rest of the time. None of us want to emulate their lives. None of us admire their lives. Frankly, we see their lives as a contradiction because they say they're followers of Christ. And yet the way they they treat people and the disrespectful way they treat people helps us understand that they don't really know the God in the way that he says that we are to live our lives. Now, James spends time talking about the negative, and therefore it's important for us to look at that, even though we would rather look at the positive. And remember that he says all of these things, or he writes all of these things uh, in a letter to a church, and therefore it must be important for him to be motivated by the Spirit of God to write that. Therefore, it's important for us to pay attention to that, to make sure that these negative qualities he's writing about aren't manifested in our lives. He says, first of all, that that some people say they are wise, but they ha- actually have counterproductive attitudes in their lives. He says, first of all, bitter envy and then selfish ambition. Bitter envy is simply having a boiling jealousy to be uh, uh, harshly zealous that it has to be done my way 
because I'm jealous of the time and the attention you get because I think I have a better solution to the problem. And so I'm jealous of the time and I'm jealous of the attention other people get because I want the crowd to follow it my way. After all, I think I'm better and smarter than everyone else. When I went to the church in, in 1997 in Tempe, Arizona, when I got there, some of the staff said to me, you need to be careful and you need to be aware of. And they named a man in the church who will start writing you letters and start sending you emails. And I said, well, tell me about them. And they said he writes all of us and he's very, very critical relative to what he writes. So I wasn't there very long before I got my first email. And frankly, it was a very unkind email. He would even write harsh words about how I stood as I was delivering sermons. And so I said to the elders, do you know this has been going on? Yes. Do you know how long it's been going? I've been going on for years and nobody had ever cared enough to confront the man. So I said to the elders, this has to stop. You should have stopped this long ago and not allowed the assistant pastors in the church to have to tolerate this. So I said, which of you is going to go with me to see this man? And finally, one elder reluctantly raised his hand. So we called the man and set up an appointment. And we sat down to talk and I said, your letters are very unkind. And they don't reflect the beauty and the wonder of Christ. And he said, well, you, you don't understand. I'm a prophet. I have the gift of prophecy. Now, he should have never said that to me because I believe in spiritual gifts. But I believe, and prophecy is one of the spiritual gifts, but I believe that the body of Christ, the church of Christ, confirms spiritual gifts. So I, Kevin Meyer just couldn't show up here and say, I have the gift of leadership, and therefore all of you fall in line and begin to follow him. The gift of leadership has been proven by other churches over a period of time. So I said, when did this church affirm that you have the gift of prophecy? And he said, well, it never has. And I said, well, I can tell you by the way the pastors have responded to you, you don't have the gift of prophecy. You're just filled with yourself and you think you're always right. And frankly, it needs to stop. Now, here's the good news. He got it. And he repented. And we changed his name from Mr. Crank to Mr. Thank. Because the letters kept coming, but now they were letters of thanks. Because he understood that that church was not affirming that he had the gift of prophecy. In fact, he didn't have the gift of prophecy. He had the gift of meanness. And it stopped. But you would have to say that this was a man who had this bitter envy because he wanted his way. And he was going to express it however he had to express it to get people's attention. And frankly... The quality of his life wasn't such until he repented that people were listening to him. James goes on to say not only the attitude of bitter envy, but selfish ambition. When people have selfish ambition, they have strife in their heart because they want to achieve something that God hasn't given them. I was talking to some people the other day about the fact that when I was a freshman in high school, I took a Latin. Why I ever did that, I don't know. But as I entered high school, my brother left that high school. I, I remember he won some academic award as the smartest kid in his senior class. And then here I come in. 
I had the same Latin teacher that he had. Maybe I was trying to keep up with him. And one day the Latin teacher said to me, well, John, you're not quite the student your brother is, are you? Well, I don't think you have to be too smart to figure that out, teacher. But see, I accepted the fact that I wasn't as bright as my brother. So I didn't try to keep up with him in that regard. And yet oftentimes what happens in the church is that someone thinks that they have a particular gift or they have a particular song or they have a particular teaching and they're not going to be happy until they get to express that teaching or express that song. And so it's selfish ambition, because really what the motivation is, is that they want to get some kind of prestige and some kind of recognition for themselves. And what they don't understand is that they're somehow lacking in their relationship with God because God is not meeting all of their needs. And so they try to to meet those needs by other people saying, wow, that was really good. And really, as somebody said, we ought to understand that we're in the theater and the audience is just an audience of one. And are we satisfying God? Doesn't matter what other people think. James goes on to say, and I have to say this is very sobering. He said, the source of this wisdom, quote unquote, is earthly or of a society in which we live. It's unspiritual and it's of the devil. Now, remember, he's writing this to a church. So he's saying some of the expressions we make to one another and about one another as we're trying to achieve some solutions to the questions we have in the church actually are not only not from God and they're not only from our secular value system in which we live, but they're actually from the devil. And that should cause all of us to snap to attention and say, oh, my goodness, have I ever spoken that way? Let me give you an example. If you were here last Sunday, I told you that I just concluded an interim pastorate in Eugene, Oregon, where the University of Oregon is, where I was voted who's he among college students in America. And but it was fun to go back to the town or the city where I went to college and actually some people I knew in college have come to faith along the way and are in the church that where I was the interim pastor. And about 1982, here at Wyzetta Free Church, we went from a three-board system to a one-board system. And we followed the example of other churches that had done it. But one of the things we did was that when we voted on going to a one-board system, we said, and this was in the motion, we will do this experiment for one year. And if at the end of the year there is not a motion to continue this and to make it permanent, then we'll go back to the old way so that nobody could say that anything had been ramrodded or nothing was was done by by subterfuge. It was all out in the open. This is an experiment for a year. We vote to continue doing it permanently or we go back to the old way. So it was fun years later to be in the town where I went to college and they asked me, one of the things they asked me to do was to help them get to a one board system from a three board system. And so basically I had all the notes from here. Essentially, we did there everything that we did here, including that one year of experimentation. So the vote was taken right at the end of 2007. And now 2008 is that year of experimentation for that church. And at the end of the year, they're going to vote whether or not to make it permanent. If there's not a motion to make it permanent, they go back to the old system. And the congregation voted on that. The congregation voted 94.8% to have the year of experimentation. Well, let's round that off and call it 95% for easy math. 95% of the congregation said, we want to do the experiment. We trust the leadership. Let's try it. 
That church, even though it's a Baptist church, has exactly the same philosophy as your church, and that is that it's congregational rule and that God speaks through congregational votes. So I think 95% is a strong statement that God has spoken, we're to do this year of experimentation. Interestingly enough, there were a few people in that 5% who continue to say, this is wrong, I don't like it, we shouldn't do it. And I said to the new elders, you men need to go to those people and tell them they are out of God's will. The underlying philosophy and theology of this church is that you believe, we believe, that God speaks through congregational votes. 95% is about as strong an expression of God as you're ever going to get. And those people are out of sync with the Spirit of God. I have a friend who had a career as a community college president, first in Michigan and then in Las Vegas and then in a suburb of Portland where I grew up and we became friends after he retired from academia. But he had been a missionary with World Vision in Japan. He's a very wise man, probably has the gift of wisdom. And one day we were talking about this sort of thing. And he said, John, it's a special form of sickness when a person will not get in step with how a congregation votes. And I said, what do you mean by that? What do you mean a special form of sickness? He said, well, if you believe in congregational rule and there's a strong vote and the person refuses to get in step with that, then they have a, a pathology that says everybody else is wrong and only they're right. So you think about it then. Uh, the, the, I think what was happening at the church in Oregon with a few people then is that they were saying their wisdom was right, but the source of their wisdom was either the secular society in which we live or it was unspiritual or maybe even of the devil. Now, those are strong words, but that's what James says here, that sometimes the wisdom we express is of the devil. And he goes on to say that the result of that is disorder and every evil practice. The word disorder there just means turbulence. So if you think about it, then back to the Oregon situation, if there's a 95 percent vote, but some people keep trying to stir the pot, then they're creating turbulence. And we need to care enough for them to say, no, there's an authority structure here and you're not submissive to the authority structure. Last week, I, I read from a book by Gordon MacDonald called Who Stole My Church? And I was joking around and said, if you've not read the book and you can't afford the book, just go to the Christian bookstore and charge it to Wyzetta Free Church. I didn't know that St. Kevin the Meyer had been talking about this book and actually said to you, if you can't afford the book, just go to the library and take one and the church will pay for it. Mary and the librarian told me that after the second service last week. So you really need to read the book. But in this particular chapter, he's talking about it's a novel. He says that there are no real people in the book except his wife and himself. But it's a novel about church life. And this particular chapter is about a vote that was taken. Here's what he says. And ask yourself, is this wisdom that he's writing about from God or is it from the other place? In the days after we voted, I began to pick up rumors about people who were going to leave the church. News of that sort spreads like the flu in a congregation. It doesn't take long until the impression grows, at least in a pastor's mind, that dozens and dozens of people are rushing for the door. When I'm thinking objectively, I'm quite aware that bold changes of any kind in an organization result in dropouts. 
A church is not helped by those who move about the building saying with lowered voices, we've really got to pray. There are a lot of upset people around here. Or some people are saying that this is the last straw, that they can't take all these changes. Well, as I read what MacDonald wrote here, I realized in my mind that he's describing wisdom that comes from the devil. Because to go around the halls of a church spreading rumors, to be sending emails or to be sending, making telephone calls saying we've really got to pray. There are a lot of upset people around here. I know some pastors who've started saying when people come and say people are really upset about here or many people are unhappy with it. They say who? How many? I know a pastor. One time somebody came to say that many people were upset with the youth ministry. And he said, well, just Try, trace it out. Tell me how many it is. And the man came back with his, his hat behind his back or however that expression goes. And he said, well, I asked my wife and one person's upset. But when he went to the pastor, he said, many people are upset. Well, Jesus says you should speak the truth and the truth shall set you free. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no, no. So somebody who goes around a church saying many people are upset and they begin speaking for other people, but they haven't counted those people and don't ask those people to speak for themselves. But obviously that's not wisdom from Jesus Christ. It's wisdom from the devil, quote unquote. Now then, in verses 17 and 18, James describes true wisdom. Here are the qualities. I call them productive attitudes. First of all, he says the wisdom from God is pure. That word simply means to be undefiled or not to be selfish. So when you and I sit down to try to discern the will of God, then then neither one of us are being selfish with one another. Both of us are willing to listen to one another, to hear what the other one says. The next, he says, is peace loving. So the wisdom from God is, first of all, pure. And then it's peace loving. It doesn't mean that we always agree. But it means that we can agree to disagree. It means that we can disagree agreeably. It means to be free from strife. I just read a quote the other day from a Canadian man. I don't, I don't know who he is. He was a professor somewhere. He's now dead. He says it this way. Tact is usually worse than the brutality of the truth. So if you and I are trying to solve a problem or you and I have some conflict or you and I are trying to figure out which direction to go and both of us sit down, but one of us or both of us isn't exactly telling the truth. Then how can we resolve the difference? How can we decide where we're going to go? So being peace loving doesn't mean that we always agree. It simply means that we're willing to follow Ephesians chapter four, where Paul writes, be diligent to preserve the spirit of the unity in the bond of peace, we can disagree. We can even disagree on what the leadership says about where the church should grow, should go and the direction it should go. And yet give 100 percent. James goes on to say that we are to be considerate, means that we're not exactly insisting on the letter of the law. We're not insisting on our rights. Most of you would know the name Dr. John Sianka. He's a professor at Bethel Seminary. I think he's spoken here a lot over the last few years. Maybe he told this story. But I was with John recently and he told me a story I'd never heard. He used to pastor in Mesa, Arizona. That church was voting on whether or not to build a large auditorium when he was pastoring. And a very influential man in the church and everyone knew that this man gave a lot of money to the church came to the microphone when they were having a town meeting or a congregational meeting to vote on whether or not to build a new auditorium. 
This man came to the microphone and he said, I want you to know that I am against this building project. And I am going to vote against it. And as John tells the story, or at least as he told it to me, he said, my heart just sank because this guy was so influential. And there was a long pause and the man then said, but I believe in congregational rule. And I believe God speaks through congregational votes. And if the congregation votes tonight to build this building, I will be the first one to make a contribution to it. That man was being considerate because he was not saying it's my way or the highway. That church gave people the freedom to express themselves. That man expressed themselves. But when the congregation voted to go ahead with the project, then he believed that God had spoken and he submitted his will to the will of God as expressed through that congregational vote. James goes on, not only are we to be pure and peace loving and considerate, we're to be submissive to one another means then that we listen to one another. We, we if you need certain answers, I give certain answers to you. If I need certain answers, you are willing to answer those questions for me. It means we're willing to be compliant to the rest of the group. And yet there are some people like some of the people in the Eugene church who continue to say, I'm going to be a problem around here because I didn't. The church didn't vote the way I wanted to vote. Now, what I'm going to read you doesn't relate exactly to congregational life. But I want you to understand that sometimes we run into circumstances that are not favorable to us and we have to choose how we're going to respond to them. I'm also breaking a cardinal rule here because no reading is supposed to be more than 30 seconds long, but this is longer than that. My father was the oldest of 11 kids, and that means I've got a lot of cousins, some of whom I hardly know. And the woman cousin in this email is a woman that I just got acquainted with. We, we figured out that we had seen each other 50 years ago when we were little kids at some family reunion. You know, the boys were probably throwing rocks at the girls for all we could remember. But uh, I was in Boise speaking and she lives near Boise where she went to college. And and I called her and it was just a delightful time. And I've come to have great respect for her. And what this is about is that as I finished the interim pastorate in Eugene, a woman wrote me and thanked me for what I had done there. And then she told me this story that after 20 years of marriage, her husband left her for another man. So I emailed, she, she wrote me, but she gave me her email. So I emailed her and said, I have a cousin in the same situation. May I give your letter to my cousin? Turns out they went, both of them went to the same college, Northwest Nazarene College in Nampa, Idaho. When the lady wrote my cousin, she said, were you in such and such music group? Were you in such and such drama group? Was your husband in such and such group? And if that's yes, then I knew you. So my cousin now writes back to this woman. This is what she writes. My cousin John Botter sent me a copy of your letter and the emails that you and he exchanged. Thank you for giving him permission to share your story with me. I'm always thrilled to hear what the Lord has done in the lives of women whose husbands have left them for other men. Because my cousin's husband left her for another man. I don't believe many people can understand the devastation this kind of unfaithfulness brings to the women left behind. Initially, it makes us question just how much of a woman we actually are that our husband would see us as so unappealing that he would leave us not for another woman, but of man. Of course, these are lies from the very depths of hell. Satan would have us believe that we're not worthy, godly, loving, uh, loving, lovely women. 
He would like us to believe that we're so unworthy that our men would leave us for another man. But what Satan meant for evil, the Lord restores and creates a stronger, more godly, more loving, more lovely daughter of his and uses that for his good. Thank you for allowing the Lord to heal and restore you. I believe there are many more of us out there than anyone can ever know. We need to reach out to others, especially in the Christian community, because the shame of what our former husbands have created in our lives can be extinguished by our encouraging one another. Uh, bringing God in as a healing balm and allowing God to perform the miracle of forgiveness in our lives. It sounds like you've done an excellent job of making sure your son is healthy spiritually and mentally from all he has been through in question. You're a very good mother. A bit about my story. My husband was a popular junior high teacher who propositioned one of his male students. He pleaded guilty to avoid prison, lost his career, was jailed, and then went through a sex offender treatment program. As soon as he was off probation and off polygraphs, he began having an affair with one of the men he met in his sex offender program. I stood by him through all of the conviction and treatment and for some time following his crime for a total of 10 years after he initially got in trouble. I found out he was having an affair with this man and the Lord released me from my marriage. We have been divorced for over 10 years. I have two sons who are now 31 and 29. Neither of them have a relationship with their father, nor do I. What I found out was that I was lied to at the altar of marriage and my husband had been having encounters since before we were married. The Lord has been gracious and physically protected me from disease, a true miracle. Remember, you are one of God's chosen daughters in whom he delights. He chose you for the refiner's fire and you were not consumed, but rather came out on the other side as a shining example of the restoration of Jesus Christ. You were loved and adored by him. God bless you as you allow Jesus Christ to work through you and love others to him through you. So here are two women communicating whose husbands left them for other men. My, men, my, my cousin told me about the, the, the anger she felt. She said anger was fun because I was plotting revenge on him. And then I realized that my anger was not hurting my ex-husband. It was only hurting me. And I had to submit myself to God in a whole new way to let him to remove that anger in my life. But the reason I read this to you is because sometimes what happens in the church when we don't get our way is that we don't submit our knee and we don't submit our will to God and bend our knee to God. But we continue to flame the fires like a few people are doing in that church in Eugene instead of saying God's voice is clear. We're to do this experiment for a year. And what I'm suggesting to you is if this woman, my cousin, who's actually a new friend of mine can allow the Spirit of God to do that in her life to the point now that she asked for my help on writing a book about her experience, about how God could restore a person in that situation, then shouldn't it follow that when we don't get our way in the church, that we should bend ourselves to the will of God and be people of grace and people of joy, not people who are honoring. James goes on, not only are we be to, the wisdom of God is pure and peace loving and considered and submissive, but it's to be full of mercy and good fruit. Uh, a short while ago, I was asked to come to a state. I won't tell you where I don't think any of you would know this church, but it's a large church. And one weekend a year, they shut down the church and go to a college campus and have a huge conference. And I was asked to be the speaker. And the pastor had retired, but they hadn't found an interim. So he was now the interim pastor working part time. And for whatever reason, while the conference was going on, he asked me to come to a board meeting that was somewhere 
near a, a lunchroom on the campus. So I was a guest and so I went. I saw something I'd never seen in all of my ministry. I've been in ministry since I graduated from college in 1966. The, the board was discussing something, and I don't even remember what. If, if I remembered, I would tell you. And, and people were discussing it and interacting with the pastor, and all of a sudden, Hitler's cousin over there said, I forbid it. And he said it just about that loudly. We are not going to do that. I forbid it. But my mouth just dropped. I was not used to people on a church board talking to one another that way. So I I waited to see what happened. Nobody said anything. I was waiting for a motion to say, we'll kick you off the board right now. Now I looked at the pastor and he didn't say anything. And then I was really conflicted because I thought they hired me for the weekend as a speaker. They didn't hire me to be a consultant. So do I say anything or do I keep quiet? That was really a hard decision. And I decided that I was there as a speaker, not as a consultant. And so I didn't say anything. Still don't know if I did the right thing. But if you think about it, then they didn't need the pastor and they didn't need the board because they had Hitler's cousin there. And they also didn't need the Holy Spirit because he knew everything. So I I emailed the pastor and, and I said, I've never seen anybody mistreated as badly as that man treated you. And he emailed back and said, well, thank you for your kindness. It's been going on for years. Can you help me? And I said, this is my fee if I come in as a consultant. But you need to understand it's going to be bloody because I will tell him he's outside of the will of God based on James 3. And he wrote back and he said, what's your price for coming? Well, I didn't want to go because it was going to be bloody. So I said $250,000 per day, figuring that, <laughs> you know, the, you're so sharp. The first hour crowd didn't get that at all. I had to tell them it was, I had to tell them it was a joke. You even look brighter than they are. Probably they were still asleep when they struggled in here. And as it turned out, they never asked me to come. But I, I kept following the church through a friend. The guy's still getting away with it. And yet here we read the the wisdom of God is pure, peace, loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. And this guy is getting away with yelling, I forbid it. If you've never read the book by James Dortch, some of you are old enough to remember Jimmy Baker and the PTL Club. Baker was in prison in Rochester, Minnesota. Dortch was his number two man on that television show. And he was in prison in Florida. Dorch was a good man. He used to be the state director for the Assembly of God in Illinois. And in a book he wrote, Integrity, Losing It and How I Got It Back. He talked a lot about ministry he did here in Minnesota. But he said one time when he was still a state director for the Assembly of God denomination or association, he was at a church board meeting and the board voted to spend money on something. And one of the board members who was the treasurer said, you can vote all you want, but I'm not signing the check. And Dort said, and this is in the book, he says, sir, then we accept your resignation immediately. If you're not going to submit to the will of the board, you can't be on this board. And the man made a big harump and slammed down the checkbook and got up and walked out. And the pastor told Dort the next day, thank you for doing that. That man has been blackmailing us for years and we've let him get away with it.
Well, you can't say the spirit of God is in a congregational meeting or a committee meeting or a board meeting when people are acting that way. Because as James says, that wisdom is is from from our secular value system. It's unspiritual. And sometimes it's of the devil. He goes on to say that the wisdom of God is impartial. Impartial. Now, none of us are perfect. The Bible says that with God, there is no partiality. So none of us are perfect. So none of us are ever going to be absolutely impartial. But what James is trying to help us understand is that when we're discussing issues or as we do in congregationally run churches, when we vote, we don't vote because we think somebody is going to be mad at us. And therefore, we need to vote the way they want us to vote. We vote the way we believe God is wanting us to vote. I was with a speaking to a Baptist group and I won't tell you which group because there are lots of Baptist groups, but many of their state and regional directors were there. And one of the men told about a church into which he went and he said, you could just feel the tension there. He said, so I began peeling back the layers of the onion. And he said, 17 years before there had been a huge conflict in the church. And I won't name the people. I don't remember their names. I just call them the Hatfields and the McCoys. And the Hatfields and the McCoys forced people to take sides. You were either with the Hatfields or you were with the McCoys. And here it was 17 years later, and that trauma was still going forward, and people in the church were still having to take sides, even though the issue had been long forgotten. But here's James saying the wisdom of God is impartial, and it's sincere. Greek word for sincere means without wax. In those Greek times, sculptors, when they were making some kind of a bust or statue, if they made a chip and a mistake, they would fill it in with wax. So discerning buyers would begin to say, is it without wax? In other words, is it the real thing? And if they suspected they were being told a lie, they said, let's let's take this statue out into the sun because the sun obviously exposes wax. This is the word that James is used. James uses when we're discussing these kinds of issues where to be sincere, where to be without wax. So we get every issue on the table and then we ask God for his wisdom as we vote. And isn't it interesting at the end of this passage, he says, and peacemakers who sow in peace, raise a raise a harvest of righteousness. Now, why would James do that? Why would he write about? peacemakers when he's been writing about wisdom. Well, I think it's because the spirit of God motivated him to help James understand that sometimes when a church is trying to discern the will of God, people get at odds with one another. And so there needs to be a peacemaker. But really, that's not the way it should be. We should have the freedom to disagree. But if you disagree with me on the way we're headed, you're not my enemy. But because we're human beings and because we don't always walk the way Christ wants us to walk, we get at odds with one another. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. So even Jesus was telling us that sometimes in the church we will be at odds with one another. And brothers and sisters need to love us enough to step in to say, we're not going to let you guys get away with this. We're going to have peace around here. Paul says in Ephesians 4, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Well, I'm over time, so I need to quit with this personal application. Just three questions and thoughts for us all. First is this. The toughest job, I think, in Christianity is looking at ourselves. And so what I want to encourage you to do is you think about the future together. As you speak in congregational meetings and in town hall meetings, are, are you speaking with the kindness of Christ? Or are you speaking with the kindness of the 
secular, the secular society in which we live. Is our wisdom, our personal wisdom, spiritual or unspiritual? Does it reflect Christ or does it reflect the world in which you live? And finally, let's remind ourselves, this is Christ's church. It's not our church. Jesus said, on this confession, Peter, I will build my church. Now, we disagree with the Catholics. They think Jesus was saying on Peter, I will build the church. We at Protestants say, believe that Jesus was saying on this confession you just made that I am the Christ. On this confession, I will build my church. But it's the church of Christ, whether we're free church or Baptist or Presbyterian. It's the church of Christ. It's not our church. But when we have selfish ambition and envy, then we act as though it's our church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the reality of the Bible. And I pray as Wyzetta Free Church moves on down the road discerning your will. That the wisdom of your wisdom would be expressed. And that people would grow because issues are discussed in the Holy Spirit. And that people would be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.